this chapter over and over and over again. It's not the easiest of chapters in the Bible, but it is very, very important that we understand what it says to also then understand the message of the righteousness in Jesus Christ. I'm not going to read all of this chapter, but I would really want to think that you'd go home and and do it yourself. I'm going to read verses 1 to 12, and also then again pick it up at verse 18. What then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather, discovered in this matter, if... In fact, Abraham was justified by works. He had nothing to boast about, but he had something to boast about, but not before God. What does the scripture say? Abraham believed, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now, when a man works, his wages are not credited to him as a gift but as an obligation. However, to the man who does not work but trusts God, who justifies the wicked, his faith is credited as righteousness. David says the same thing when he speaks of the blessedness of the man to whom God credits righteousness apart from works. Blessed are they whose transgressions are forgiven whose sins are covered, blessed is the man whose sins the Lord will never count against him. Is this blessedness only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? We have been saying that Abraham's faith was credited to him as righteousness. Under what circumstances was it credited? Was it after he was circumcised or before? Was it not after? It was not after, but before. And he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. So then, he is the father of all who believe but have not been circumcised in order that the righteousness may be credited to them. And he is also the father of the circumcised who not only are circumcised but also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. <clears throat> it was then I jump to verse 18 against all hope Abraham in hope believed and also became the father of many nations just as it has been had been said to him you so shall your offspring be <clears throat> without weakening his faith he faced the fact that his body was as good as dead since he was about a hundred years old and that Sarah's womb was also dead. 
Yet he did not waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God, but was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God. Being faithfully persuaded that God had power to do what he had promised, this is why it was credited to him as righteousness. The words it was credited to him were written not for him alone, but also for us, to whom God will credit righteousness. For us who believe in him, who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead, he was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification. I just want to read verse 24 and 25 again. Also for us to whom God will credit righteousness, for us who believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. He was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification. May the Lord add blessing, his blessing to this word for the sake of his name. I just want to sum up the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. And all of you by now, by now would know this. In his death on the cross, Jesus Christ fulfilled and replaced the Old Testament sacrificial system. He offered up himself as the supreme once-for-all sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood and by giving his life. By his one act of righteousness, salvation is a free gift for all who believe. In being delivered up to death, Jesus accompanied the following things. And see if you can remember these things and make it your own through faith. He paid the penalty of sin. That's exactly what we read there in verse 24 and 25 of Romans chapter 4. In his body, Jesus bore the sins of the world so that humanity might receive forgiveness and that their sin would be, impu- his, their sin would be imputed to Christ's account in order that Christ's righteousness may be reckoned to their account. These words are key words that we will use today. Impute and reckoned and accounted. Impute. The closest we can get to a word that we use every day is compute. Well, it's the same, it's the same uh, basic meaning with another prefix to it. Righteousness of Jesus Christ is reckoned added on to, the figures are carried over. And our unrighteousness is imputed onto Christ. It's taken away from us and it's put on that column belonging to Christ. Christ broke the power of sin by paying the ransom price so that believers could be free from the slavery of sin. 
He removed the pollution of sin by making man clean through his blood. And he destroyed the partition of sin to reconcile human beings to God and put them back into a right relationship with him. And that's righteousness and justification. We, we are put in the right relationship with God. We are, we are justified. We, we live now in the relationship with God so that we may never be again separated from God. In the chapter of Romans we read today, the word accredited is repeated over and over again. And this concept is also found right through the Old Testament. It's another word then for account or reckon. In theology we use the word impute. And the standard statement is that God imputes to us the righteousness of Jesus Christ. He imputes to us the righteousness of Jesus Christ. So when we think, when we talk about impute, think about compute in, in a certain sense, not the same word, but in the certain sense, to say that there is a, a counting up of certain things on both columns, and then there's an exchange of certain things so that what was there is carried over into this column and what was there is carried over into that column. Now I want to uh, use two words today and I want to try, I'll try to explain to you the difference between these things. One is impute. And I've already explained to you what impute means. A thing is reckoned as to be something. It is, becomes the benefit of someone or another process. But what we need to understand is, unlike we today, uh, if we say, I think I've got $25 in my bank account, if that much, uh, then uh, when I use the word impute, I have come to an exact figure. It's not a guess. So impute is something that presupposes exact bookkeeping. And when God imputes to us the righteousness of Jesus Christ, it is perfect, it is complete, it is not something that we guess about, we just read the bottom line and we take the bottom line's answer for the truth. And that is what we do by faith. Now I want to explain this to you and trying to put the two things together. The other word is infuse. Rudy proceeded to demonstrate to the congregation and the children the difference between infusion and imputation. As a part of the demonstration, he added uh, food dye to a glass of water, and that was um, infusion, and he demonstrated how, no matter how much food dye he added, that the water would never become the food dye. And then he gave the creation of 
salvation to one of the children and explained how this is an analogy to imputation. This is his reading of that declaration of imputation. Okay, I'll read to you what it says, and I try to do that. A declaration of justification. It's not a certificate. It's, it says something. Declaration of justification. Because Jesus Christ died for you to pay the price of your sin for God's righteousness, and because he rose again to justify you before God, Ethan Pynchon, by faith in Jesus Christ, as his Lord and Savior has become a child of God. He is called to trust God in obedience to Christ Jesus by walking in faith before God all his life. Who said this? God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit as declared in Romans chapter 4, verse 24 and 25. What's the difference between that and this? This impute, impute, okay. This is declaring the fact. This is to say, try your hardest to become what you're not at the moment. That is infuse. Do you get you get the, the difference here? Okay, this is the fact. Just imagine, you open your mail one day, and this is what you get there. Well, you don't need to open your mail then. You just open the Bible and read that, because that's what it says in the Bible. Okay, I hope that through what I'm going to say further down the track, and I've used a lot of time in this, and I, I'll just to summarize the sermon a bit more, that you will understand that the righteousness, what puts us right with God, is not because of what we do, but it's because of what Christ did for us. And therefore, in the Bible, we get verses like Romans chapter 4, and I can put my name on that, and you can put your name on it too. I just chose Ethan's name, but I could have put anyone's name on it who believes in Jesus Christ. Anyone's name. You can put your name on that if you want to. If you want me to make something up for you, you just give me your name. Are you sure you're a child of God? I'll, I'll make you up one of these. And you can stick it on your wall or, or, or on your, you know, ladies would like it on their mirrors too because you know, they can look at it every day. And once again, it says there that we are righteous, declared righteous, not because of what we do and what we have done, but because of what Christ did for us. Okay. Thank you very much. And you may go back to your seats. Paul quotes David, and the verse that he quotes from David is found in Psalm 32, verse 1 and 2, and we've read that today. Here in Romans chapter 4, it has a specific meaning. Blessed, are, blessed is he whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Paul points to Psalm 32 to explain to us what impute means or 
to count or to accredit or to reckon. When God accredits righteousness on us who are not righteous by birth. David had broken at least four of the Ten Commandments outright when he coveted Bathsheba, he committed adultery, he murdered Uriah, and then he lied about it. And the Old Testament sacrificial system made no provision for such premeditated sin. We read in Numbers chapter 15 verse 30, But anyone who sins defiantly, whether native-born or alien, blasphemes the Lord, and that person must be cut off from his people. And now David cries out in Psalm 51 verse 16 and 17, For you will not delight in a sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering, but the sacrifice of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart, O Lord, you will not despise. David's case was hopeless. There was nothing that he could do but to cast himself on the mercy of God. And that is what he did by faith. And God forgave his transgressions. He then did not count his transgressions against him. That's what it says in, in, in Psalm 32. God did not count his sins against him. What did he do? He actually exchanged David's transgression with the grace of God and took it away from David. And F.F. F. Bruce, a great expositor of the Word of God, says about Psalm 32, if we examine the remainder of the psalm to discover the ground on which David was acquitted, it appears that he simply acknowledged his guilt and cast himself in faith upon the mercy of God. And David then is called by Paul a blessed man, a happy man. Twice, he is called blessed. So the principle of imputed righteousness, that computed term, was mightily illustrated in the life of Israel's greatest king, the man of the God's own heart. Therefore, we need to understand nothing you and I can do can ever atone for our sins. Our only hope is, as Paul puts it in Romans chapter 3, 21 and 22, our only hope is the righteousness of God that has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, this righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. That included the non-Jews. In all respects, Gentile people, Paul argues in verses 9 to 12 of chapter 4 that Abraham was saved by faith while he was still a non-Jew. He was still Gentile. And therefore the faith principle is universal. Paul shows that Genesis chapter 15 verse 6 where it talks about the righteousness of God reckoned 
to Abraham because of his faith occurred at least, at least 14 years before Abraham was circumcised. He received that as a sign of God's righteousness. It was not the righteousness itself. So you might also ask, what about this living under the law then? Paul makes it clear that a similar argument in respect to those under the law applies. And he says for, uh, in verse 13, For the promise to Abraham and his offspring he, that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. So Paul says when you work, and when you're done at the end of the day, and you line up to, be, to get your pay, well, that is how it's done. You've worked for it, you're going to get it. On the other hand, if you just walked in there, and you did nothing, and you walked out and you are taken by the shoulder, and the, uh, the, the boss there say, says, I want to give you a day's loan. And you say, well, I haven't done anything. Yes, that's right. But I want to give it to you. So why would you give it to me? Because I'm merciful. That's why. That's what it means. To make the promise conditional on obedience to the law, which was not even hinted at when the promise was given, would nullify the whole promise. Righteousness and its promised benefits has always come by faith to those who live by faith. Paul says the principle of faith transcends the law. Abraham was credited as righteousness because of his faith, not because he lived according to God's uh, requirements set in the law. So was David, because David had nothing. He transgressed the whole thing. Righteousness through faith preceded the Jewish people and the law, and therefore salvation comes only through faith. And that's the way it's always been, and it will be. Now you might ask, now, what did God see in Abraham? <clears throat> Abraham was a righteous man, so he must have done something good. Now, the point is he didn't do something good. God chose Abraham. Why? Because God wanted to. Was Abraham better than anyone living in, 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 in the world around him? No. The difference was this. When God called Abraham, Abraham believed God. And the mere fact that he believed God and the promises of God, that God would make him a blessing to many nations and that he would give him a descendancy which you couldn't count, he believed God. He was 100 years old and Sarah was... 10 years younger, which is not much younger, 90. And the Lord said, I'll give you a child. And he trusted God. Just imagine, there was Abraham. One day, God called him. So the next morning, he started to pack up his things. And he started to gather all things, and people of the neighborhood would come and ask him, Now, now uh, Abraham, where are you going? Uh, no, I, I don't know really. 
So Abraham, who, who put this idea in your mind? God. Now who's this God you're talking about? It's the God of the heavens and the earth. So David, what, uh, Abraham, what are you going to do when you get to, to this land? I don't know. But what's going to happen when you get there? Well, God said he's going to give me a, a children. What? God can give you children? Well, that's what God says. So I'm packing up. I'm going. I'm leaving my family. Where's this promised land, Abraham? <clears throat> well, to be quite honest, I don't know. That's by now that we'd say, he's gone a bit bonkers, isn't that? His, 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 his mind's leaving old Abraham. Abraham, he's, he's, he's 100 years of age. You can expect all sorts of funny things happening now. But he believed God. And that made the difference. <clears throat> now, when we talk about infused righteousness, I don't, I don't want to give you a completely worked out dissertation of the issue as understood by other people. But this whole issue is seen in the life, in the life of a brilliant scholar and author of a theological dictionary in the previous century. His name was Herman Krima. Now, he was the son of, uh, of a Jewish merchant who converted to Christianity with his family. And Krima became a student of a fellow named Beck. And he wanted to become a minister. And Beck then taught him all sorts of things. But Krima wrestled with the dogmatic and homiletic question of how he could rightly preach penitence and forgiveness to a congregation which was living self-righteously. I mean, if people are good, and they look like they're really good, how do you preach penitence to them and forgiveness? Why would you preach forgiveness to them if they've already done so much good that they haven't got anything to be forgiven? That was his problem. And his mentor, Beck, rejected the view that the righteousness of Christ is imputed to the believer and that justification is something which is just pronounced or accredited or declared. Beck argued that the scripture never says that divine justification takes place through a legal pronouncing of the sinner being righteous. He said justification is not an act of imputation, but it's an act of infusion which God then he says makes it possible for me which is an act of grace so by the way we need to understand that God makes it possible for me by infusing the grace and the righteousness of God in me so that I now can the more I commit myself to the Lord would be able to become more and more like Jesus so that in the end he would save me because of all the things that I've become. And that then became a, 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 a form of, 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 of uh, official theology. If the believer dies without having the fullness of the righteousness, 
coming in part from the last rites, he or she will temporarily spend time in purgatory until the sinful status is purged from our record. You see what happens? God pours the grace into me through the sacrament, and then I am given the possibility and and all these then to become righteous so that God would be happy with me when I die. And when I eventually, let's say I haven't done all the things I should have, and I'm not as red as I should be if I can use that. I'm only pink, pale, or whatever when I die, uh, or I have a hint of red in me, I'm put in purgatory. And so it becomes someone else's problem to get me out of there. You know, They have to do a bit more to... Uh, get more righteousness than me than they need for themselves so I can get it to get out of there although the sinner is justified by the justice of Christ in as much as the redeemer has merited for him or her grace to justification nevertheless the believer is formally justified and made holy by his or her own personal justice or holiness You see, you see the difference? But Krima, he was the one who he struggled with this, and he, he dedicated two years of his life in the study of the Hebrew and the Greek just to understand this, and he came to this conclusion. Therewith I've increasingly learned to admire the sure beat of the evangelical church, which by the way of direct confession of faith has known before us what we have had to establish as truth by our researches. It was important that I should and could take test these studies of mine in parish work. I'm going to conclude. This then, my dear brother and sister, in the Lord takes us to the verse in Romans chapter 4. I'm going to read that again. The words accredited to him, referring to Abraham, were written not for him only, but also for us, to whom God will credit righteousness or impute righteousness for us who believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. He was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification. Therefore, faith in the Lord Jesus Christ unites me with him so that what he did for me becomes mine through faith. He died for my sins. He was raised to life for my justification. In other words, to put it in the words of the Westminster Confession of Faith, because God calls me to him, he freely justifies me, not by infusing righteousness into me, but by pardoning my sins and accounting and accepting my person as righteousness, as righteous. This is not for anything credited, created in me or done by me, but for Christ's sakes only. When I get the righteousness imputed to me, my faith does not become 
an act of good deeds. Some people say, well, you have to believe then, you know, and your faith then becomes a set of good works. Now, someone said this, one thing that I will never believe in, and that's my faith. Because my faith cannot save me. My faith takes me to Christ who saves me. Okay, you get that? My faith takes me to Christ, to Christ who, who, who saves me. I'm purely justified because God imputes or accredits to me the obedience and the satisfaction of Christ's death and resurrection. That is, in short, the gospel of grace. Would it be out of place then to ask you this morning, do you believe this? It would not be. It's quite, it's quite appropriate to ask you, do you believe? Because if you don't believe it, you miss it. It's all gone. It's just something you've heard. You have to believe this. And therefore I ask you, do you believe this with all your heart, your soul, your mind, your power, your strength, like, like Abraham did? Give your life to the Lord Jesus Christ. That's our only hope. Let us pray. Our Lord and our Father, we thank you that we could think about these difficult things. It's probably more difficult because we make, we make it difficult. But it's not that difficult but because by faith we, we just need to accept this. Give us the grace to, like children, put our faith in you and just give your hand, uh, our hand into your hand and say, well, I follow you. Like Abraham did. Like David did. We thank you, Lord, for grace, for righteousness, and for justification. In Jesus Christ. Amen.